the title of your podcast is Black on the Air, and you're black, so how's that working out for you? Wow, what are the odds? <laughs> Welcome to Majority Minority, a podcast about people of color changing the face of Washington. I'm Frank Ordonez, and I cover the White House for the 30 news outlets that together make up McClatchy. And I'm Bill Douglas, and I cover Congress for McClatchy. Today we have Larry Wilmore, former nightly show host on Comedy Central, and now a podcaster hosting Ringer's Black on the Air. People uh, have been very passionate about wanting to hear from me, and I felt what better way than to use this medium, the medium of the podcast. He joined us to chat about why The Nightly Show went off the air and about his time as The Daily Show's senior black correspondent. It was really interesting hearing him talk about that. Politics has taken a greater and greater role in comedy, and this is an extension of what he was doing in The Daily Show. He's joined the podcast generation in that time. He's had some great guests on, Senator Bernie Sanders, Senator Al Franken, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and he's used his comedy, which has been centralized on political stuff, to toggle back and forth with his guests to talk politics. We were sort of curious about his origins of comedy, and we were definitely curious about the title of his new podcast. You know, it's funny. I just said, I think I would just call it the Larry Wilmore podcast. I mean, I didn't have a name. So we went back and forth about stuff. But it really means nothing except for just to make fun of the fact that I'm back. Other than that, it tells us nothing about the podcast. It means nothing to our lives. It adds nothing of value to the discussion. It's just a a play on words that makes me happy. So there you go. But it's sort of, it's an interesting double entendre given the fact you're not on TV anymore. Yes. You're you're back in this venue. What's the difference between what you did on TV and what you're doing now with the podcast? It's so funny. Television is such a particular type of animal. You have a certain amount of time to do something. There's a presentational quality that has to be there. Live audience, you know, things have to be produced in a certain way in order to make that show something that people are going to want, you know. Whereas a podcast, there's so much freedom in a podcast. And part of my goal in the podcast is to make it feel like I'm having a conversation and to give that feel to people. Because your audience has a different relationship with you. On a television show, they're sitting and it's a little formal and they're watching it and you've got to bring it. It's like, come on, entertain me. I'm tired. I was just at work. Do something, you know. But with the podcast, you're almost like their friend. Like people listen to podcasts while they're working out, while they're walking, you know, while they're driving. So it's almost like you're a companion. And so it gives it a different relationship and allows you a little more freedom to be a little more personal rather than presentational. And I love that aspect of it. Why did you choose this line of work? Why this vocation? It's insanity that somebody would choose this. There's a certain level of masochism, certainly sadism, when you're not being funny. But I don't know. I've always been drawn to just making people laugh and finding the funny in things. People ask me, why did you get into comedy? I said, well, to be honest with you, I got into showbiz so I could get comedy out of me. I could have worked in a bank, but I still would have been trying to make people laugh. It just wouldn't have been as popular in that bank, you know. <laughs> I think I chose it because of the expression more than anything else. It's something that I really enjoy doing it. I think that's why I like to do different things like producing and being behind the scenes as well as in front of the camera because I like the, the expression of doing it. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with John Stewart. Even though I've done a lot of different things in the business, I'm most known for The Daily Show first when I was senior black correspondent. Thank you very much. (laughs) All right, I'll get right to it. There's some exciting race news. You wouldn't believe what white people are starting to do. I still love that title. It always makes me laugh, the senior black correspondent. Who's the junior one? That's the whole point, guys. There never was one, nor should there ever be one. There should only be a senior black correspondent, you know. (laughs) 
we were talking about race in a way that hadn't really been been done in comedy, where it was a smart take that was I call a contrary take on race. And John and I doing it, we were in a relationship where there was kind of tension between us during the conversation, which was kind of a metaphor for how America talks about race. 93% of blacks are shot by other blacks. They are killing each other. They don't talk about that. Well, you know, Larry, what do you say uh, uh, to those people? Oh, I don't know, John. I would say they should probably go themselves. <laughs> I have to give John so much credit. He deferred so much when we were working on those ideas, you know. Like, if they had a really solid take on it, but I was like going, I don't know, guys. From my perspective, it feels like this, and I would talk it through. John doesn't have to agree with that. You know, he's the he's John Stewart, right? He was so awesome about, you know what? Wow, I never even thought about it like that. Well, let's go down this road. And he would always defer if I ever had that, you know. And it allowed us to get into a different level of a conversation about it rather than, remember earlier we were talking about the low-hanging fruit, rather than what's the low-hanging fruit in this racial discussion? Well, let's go a little deeper. What's the thing we maybe didn't quite look at? What's that other conversation? I like social satire more than I did political stuff. That's the way I looked at it. So what did you look at? What was that level? Sometimes it was my personal take on it based on experience that wasn't being represented in the argument, you know? It wasn't taking a left or right side. It was a contrary side that just had truth in it. Like one of the early ones that I did that became the title of my book was we were talking about Black History Month. And the typical black comics joke on Black History Month is that the month is too short. Like, how come we only got 28 days, you know? But for me, I took the contrary, like... (laughs) <laughs> 28 days of trivia. I'd rather we got casinos, you know, was the joke. John, let's be honest. Black History Month is a drag, okay? <laughs> White people have to pretend to care about black people. Black people have to pretend to care about history. It's a lose-lose. You know, it's like, I don't, why are we just having a trivia contest in February? It's boring. And I was saying how much I hated Black History Month, but for these specific reasons. And it was a take we hadn't quite heard on it. And it was so much fun for us to do that take on it, you know. And then on The Nightly Show, which was a bit of an extension of that, where I was able to really cover more social issues rather than just the racial angle. But certainly that was part of it. And cover politics more and more, and Washington being a big part of that. So a lot of people know me for that, you know. And it's something that I'm very interested in. All right, guys, you know what time it is. Time to check in with America's efforts to de-Negrofy <laughs> the White House. That's right, let's see what's happening with the unblackening. There were some folks that thought that show was too black. Did you think so? No, I didn't think it was too black. I know that we tackled a lot of racial issues head on, and I think that may have been too racial for some people, and I can definitely see that. But the issues were happening. We felt it was our duty to kind of go after those. I mean, we came on right on the heels of Ferguson and a lot of these police incidents and so many things. And it wasn't just the racial things. I mean, we were covering women's issues. The transgender issue was blowing up full steam and there were so many issues out there that we felt our show should be a show to kind of cover those things you know now when we started the show we wanted to have a conversation on some very tough subjects and we've had a lot of fun doing just that i mean really our show was at its best when the news was at its worst and uh i'm just so proud that we were able to take on real issues and i don't know hopefully say something powerful while making people laugh and on the plus side i must say our show going off the air has to only mean one thing. Racism is solved. (laughs) We did it.
What do you think mainstream America's kind of issue with those kind of shows is? I mean, why don't more people pay attention? What is it? I don't know. It's funny. When we went off, we had this outcry from people. No, how dare you? We need this. And I felt like people may have kind of taken us for granted in a sense where it was one of those things that they appreciated it. Until it left, they didn't realize the service it was providing because then it wasn't there anymore, you know. So it was one of those kind of situations. And look, I'll acknowledge it's not The Tonight Show. You know, we're not going to have the biggest audience. But we always had a very passionate, loyal audience that really just passionately loved our show. It's amazing, guys. People still come up to me. And people of all ages, from teenagers to to octogenarians, that, oh, Larry, thank you so much. Like, they'll say thank you, not, hey, man, I thought you were funny, but thank you so much for what we're doing. We miss you and all these things. And it's so heartfelt. And it's so amazing. I'm like, well, thank you, you know. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Larry Wilmore, Black on the Air. I am Larry Wilmore. I am Black on the Air. What role does Washington play in your podcast? Well, it really is the um, parallel universe epicenter of the world right now where, I mean, think about how much power this president should have right now. He's a Republican president, Republican Senate, Republican Congress, but the own party can't figure out their own president. I mean, they're completely flummoxed by it, guys. It's amazing to me some of the things that are going on. And with a character like Trump, every comedian's dream, of course, you know, to have an outsized character like that in the White House, who's just everything he does is worthy of some kind of comic content. So everything is ripe for commentary right now. Is he an easy target? No. Why? Well, the low-hanging fruit isn't necessarily interesting. Because everybody's making that joke about the low-hanging fruit, you know, and especially with technology today, people are getting their first on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. So you always really need to have your own opinions about things and dig a little deeper into what is your real feeling about something. Like one of my earlier uh, podcasts, instead of talking about the actual thing that Trump said, I really went into the different ways that he lies. (laughs) To me, Hillary lied like a politician, but Trump lies like an alcoholic. You know, in fact, better yet, he lies like a crackhead. And the crack that he's trying to get is basically just more attention. Is Washington itself a funnier topic? Wow, that's a good question. Um, Funnier? I don't know. I think funnier is what we make out of it, because at any time, I guess it can be funny. But I think because of what's going on right now, it it feels maybe a little more pathetic right now Mm -hmm. that things aren't getting done. I think people kind of understood when Obama was president and there was opposition in the Senate and the House and there was a stalemate and you're like, whatever. As frustrating as that was, you understood it. We can't understand it now. If if nothing gets done now, I mean, the anger that people will have at, at Washington, it, it already exists at a high level. But I cannot imagine how upset people are going to be if it feels like the same type of stalemate, and rightly so. You know, Washington has been a topic of conversation and a topic of jokes for a long time, you know, back to Dennis Miller on SNL, Mm -hmm. but then you had The Daily Show, we had your show on Comedy Central, we had Colbert, obviously. Why is Washington such a big part of, like, the comedic arena that we're in now? I think it's Trump. I, I really do. I don't think it would be the same if Hillary was president. I think it is this outsized id that lives right outside of his ego, you know, all the time right in front of us. We can't believe that this character is president, you know, that this 
dinosaur that walked the earth is walking it again and, and is leading us, you know? I mean, it's amazing to us. None of us can believe we're all in cognitive dissonance. Even the Republicans could not believe that Trump became president, which to me was the funniest thing in the world. I'm not sure Trump could believe that he became president. <laughs> I don't think he did. <laughs> I don't think he even planned on giving a, a speech that night of acceptance. I think he was surprised. You I don't know? think he had any plan B. Plan B is be president. <laughs> yes, right? So, uh, I think because we're living in that phenomena, it's amped everything up to another level. Has comedy gotten more partisan? Definitely, without a doubt. I got a chance to talk to Senator Franken, and we talked a lot about his SNL days. And it was interesting how he mentioned that the ethos at SNL, and this is regardless of how the jokes are taken, but inside, that the ethos there was not to take a side because they acknowledged that they had so many different types of people who worked on the show job of the show we did not feel was to have a political bias. What we thought was that we should do well-observed comedy, a well-observed mm -hmm. political comedy that rewarded people who knew stuff and yeah. were smart about politics, but didn't punish you for not knowing stuff. Yeah. And in fact, the head writer for all the political stuff, Jim Downey, is a Republican, he's a conservative. And so they've had people on the right and on the left writing for that show. And so they always wanted to really dig into the psyche of whoever that person was, whether it was Clinton or, or the first Bush or all that type of stuff, whether it's Gore talking about the lockbox, you know, <laughs> or, you know, those type of things. Now, one of the keys to the lockbox would be kept by the president. The other key would be sealed in a small magnetic container <laughs> and placed under the bumper of the Senate majority leader's car. You know, when you look back, you, it does feel like that, you know, but I think it was The Daily Show that made things more partisan, Yeah. where I think John really had a specific take on the Bush administration, first from the election, and then especially with the Iraq war, where it felt like John was taking sides. And he was the first one, because I don't even think Marr did that, because Marr had a show, Politically Incorrect, where he had both sides on the show all the time. That was kind of the point of it. There's kind of a debate around here whether comedy has gotten more partisan or just the audience has gotten more partisan and the comedians are, you know, going to their audience. I, I think comedians have gotten more partisan and the audiences have said, okay, we accept that now. That's fine. But sometimes the times you're in allows you to do things differently. The audience was just as partisan 30 years ago, but since people weren't doing that, no one was looking for it, you know? I mean, the example 30 years ago that we were just getting finished with was Johnny Carson, who you never knew if Johnny was a Republican or a Democrat. You know who Jennifer Flowers is? You've been following this? She's the one who says she has some tapes that Governor Clinton called her and they had an affair. He denied it. She got fired, you know. She was a receptionist at an unemployment agency. She got canned, but she got a new job today as a Donald Trump backup mistress. <laughs> That's right. If for any reason Marla Maples is unable to fulfill her duties, Jennifer steps in. You know, Leno kind of took that mantle, too. Letterman was a little bit on the left, but he really didn't go there that much until his later days, you know, really until after The Daily Show did, you know. So there wasn't a lot of examples out there, people who did it, who were the the uh, kings of it, let's say, you know, the kings or the queens of it. So it's funny because the constituency, the people that love that crave it now, and how dare you if you don't do it, you know, if that's what they want to hear. It's almost like a Twitter mentality sometimes. Like, how dare you be neutral in that argument? How dare you? You have, to, you, you have to take a side. What's wrong with you? Like, that to me makes me laugh. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because people are amped up, and 
Is there more pressure on, on folks like you to take a side? I listened to your Franklin interview, and you mentioned you don't think satire is a change agent. That's a heavy burden, and it, it isn't. Is. I, don't, I think it makes you, I, I do think it makes you laugh, and it makes you feel better, and yes. gives you some hope, maybe, and, and or just makes you, it addresses uh, your anxiety and fear, which right. I, there's a lot of that. I've been doing this book. Before. God, it's so weird. Like, they want comedy to do all this heavy lifting. It's like, whatever happened to counsel people and to activists and to all these things? Why do you want the, why do you want the comedians of all people, people you would never trust 20 years ago to do anything but tell you jokes, and now you want them in charge of things? Are you kidding me? Well, I don't know <laughs> if people want them in charge, but I mean, I certainly feel like comedy has a way to cut through, you know, the punditry speak, the legalese. I mean, we journalists, I mean, we're suffering from the same thing. I mean, you're talking about how the audience is saying you have to pick a side. I kind of feel like us journalists are kind of getting asked the same thing. And we have a president who is, you know, basically saying you have picked a side and when we really haven't. I think journalism is definitely maybe at a turning point right now where people may just have to acknowledge that they're on a side. It's, that's possible that we may be there. And I think more to your point, I think comedy was able to pick a side because people felt journalism wasn't or they weren't acknowledging it. Hmm. You know, hmm. like when Fox said fair and balanced, it's like if they had said conservative and balanced, it would have been more of an acknowledgement of who they were, you know, or, uh, Instead of MSNBC, instead of lean forward, if they had said lean left, that would have been a little more honest, you know, <laughs> because the audience felt like they weren't quite getting a straight shot from those places that Jon Stewart was at least telling them the uh, truth. They felt he was being honest about it, you know, and so they were flocking there for news. As you recall, you did the White House Correspondents' Dinner. and I don't uh, recall that. What is this thing you're talking about? There's some <laughs> kind of dinner for correspondents? <laughs> Chris Christie was supposed to be here tonight. I don't know if he made it. Um, he RSVP'd for three, him, uh, his wife, and Donald Trump's dry cleaning. <laughs> you guys are tough, man. It's become a, an event that has a certain degree of pressure to it. Why do some comedians view this event as it sort of dangerous or avoid it, and, and should they? I think different comedians have different opinions. Some comedians think it's not going to help their career in any way, so why do it? And it's a pain in the butt. It's a difficult room to make people laugh in, blah, blah, blah. I kind of felt it was an honor to do something for the president. You know, he's the guest of honor there. And it was always in my evil plan to be able to do it for Obama's last one. And I was so lucky that it happened that way because I viewed his presidency as a historical presidency. So it kind of meant something a little bit more to me than just the dinner itself. Why is it a difficult room? The room is so wide, it's hard to get everyone's attention at once. It's easy for people to be talking and, and be distracted. There are different ideologies in the room. It's not like people came to see you like it would be in a comedy club. You know, people are there for different reasons. So you're not going to please everybody at once. You're going to have eruptions in different places where people laugh. And a lot of people are silent and looking at you like, who hired this guy? You know, and the president is right next to you and you <laughs> hope that you are entertaining him or pleasing him or in the case of Colbert, you know, doing the complete opposite, you know, and hoping that nobody takes you away, you know. I mean, it, it is such a huge bag of narcissism in there, <laughs> and, you know, and power grabbing. It's unbelievable, you know. So even the, like, I went with the complete roast style where no one was happy with me pretty much, you know, which I thought was kind of a victory to have no one happy with me. Words alone do me no justice. Um, so, Mr. President, if I'm going to keep it 100, yo, Barry, 
You did it, my nigga. Did it. Obama was very gracious. He was very gracious. He kind of defended me in the press when people asked if that was appropriate for me to say. And then he kind of quoted me at commencement speech. He didn't quote the N-word part, but just the part about... uh, So you're quoting what I said last week. uh. Oh, wait, no, no. Which part are you quoting, Mr. President? As Larry Wilmore pointed out last week, a lot of folks didn't even think Blacks had the tools to be a quarterback. (laughs) I'm glad he went with the quarterback part, man. I thought he was going to call the entire graduating class at Howard. Well, let's just say I'm glad he didn't do that. He put that that in the lockbox, right? (laughs) Yes, exactly. I think they all wanted that in the lockbox forever. But uh, he was very, very gracious about it. But you also talked about when you, when you did that, that that was sort of bringing it home. And that was sort of like a family conversation to a, a large, mostly white audience. That's a good way to put it. I think Obama understood it immediately. I could tell by his reaction. He got it, what I was saying, especially because of the preamble. And, you know, we're the same age. And he was I was born in 1961. You know, he went down that whole president and route, whatever. You know, I did comedy. So, yeah. <laughs> get over yourself. <laughs> So we were both born into a world that had contempt for us before we could even speak, you know, and to speak about that was extraordinary. And I just wanted to acknowledge that in a way that kind of did several things. So, What about the difference now in the late night comics? You've got Colbert, who's sort of going great guns. Fallon took a little bit of a stumble after he had Trump on. And Fallon is in the Tonight Show tradition of not being heavy politics. And Colbert is just the opposite. Should hosts go after or go heavy on the politics on late night or is it a comfort zone question? I think they just have to be who they are. You know, I think the audience wants authenticity more than anything else. Fallon is Fallon. He has his style. Ironically, it was Stephen who struggled in the beginning because I think he wasn't quite being in his comfort zone. He thought he had to be something other than what he actually really relishes talking about, you know. Once he got the gift of Trump, let's say, you know, he got the comedy wings and was able to start flying with that. Last week, we learned that Donald Trump's own secretary of state called him a moron. Not only is that an insult, he gave away Trump's Secret Service code name. Kimmel has his own approach, you know, which works for him and and Conan, who has his own style, too. You know, Correct me if I'm wrong, but none of those guys are blatant conservatives. You know, why don't conservatives have a funny show? What a question. I think there have been a lot of funny conservative people, but I don't know. There may be an opportunity now, though, for somebody to break through, because since that question is being asked, I think it would be awesome, by the way, if somebody came out, just balls out and was that funny conservative, you know, in the way that liberals have taken that mantle. I think it'd be great. I mean, is there is there an inherent liberal bias? Yeah, because I think there's more permission to go after the sacred cows from the left. Some of the issues that the left really cares about, they care about passionately, like climate or social issues and those type of things, you know. Like nobody cares if you do if you go after trade. Who who really cares? You know? And that's a position that could be right or left, you know. I mean the right is passionate about taxes, but who really the left could care less. They're not passionate about that. So if you do a joke about that, you know, you're not gonna get the same type of blowback from an audience going, Whoa, why you gotta say that? You know, people can laugh about it. 
So I think it's finding the point of view that can connect with an audience and being fierce with your point of view and being yourself. I think those are the keys if you're going to do something, because you have to be unapologetic. You have to not care that people are going to have a certain opinion, but you have to find the thing that connects with people is the key, you know, but I don't think it's impossible. I just think, you know, somebody just has to do it. Now, with your podcast, you've had many political guests on. You've had Franken on. You've had Bernie Sanders on. What has this experience taught you about politics? What have you learned about politics from them that you might not have known? Politicians are the hardest people to interview because they have talking points. And it's very difficult to get them to be themselves. And as a challenge, you have to find a way to engage them where you can bring them out and not their positions out. I'd rather get their opinion than their position. And so how do you get their opinion on something? With Franken, I kind of ran out of time, but at least I was getting opinion about things because we were talking about something that he loved, which was writing comedy and all that performing. And as soon as we got into the politics, I could start to feel positions coming out. And so it's very difficult because they're politicians and that's what they do. And he even acknowledged it when he talked about pivoting and that that's how they answer questions. And so I was making sure that that didn't happen in the interview, ironically. And uh, someone like Sanders, who has a very strong personality, it's the same type of thing. So I don't care whether they're on the right or the left or I agree or disagree. I want to get the, the person out there and try to get something inside of there and not just get a position. It's irrelevant, my opinion on it or how I feel about it. It's almost like you're becoming a journalist. Oh, my God. What's going on? I thought it was a fake one. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again to Larry Wilmore for being here, and thank you for listening. Subscribe to Majority Minority on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and hear more stories at mcclatchydc.com slash mm. The show is produced and edited by Jordan Marie Smith and Davin Coburn, and thanks to executive producer Ayanna Morali. And we'll be back soon with more Majority Minority. <laughs>